Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. I'm Melanie. And I'm Cassie. We're here to help you relax and unwind. It's time for candles, bubbles, wine, and of course, a tale of true crime. So go on, soakers. Settle into the tub. Let your muscles relax and your heart race as we dive into Bath and Body Parts. Stokers, we have a special treat for you today. Melanie is out of town enjoying a well-deserved vacation and her husband has graciously offered to fill in. And we've talked about him on the show before and we tend to refer to him as Matthew, but most of the world knows him as Skip. Or Uncle Skip. Or Uncle Skip, yes. (laughs) And what you might not know is that he is actually the true genius behind Bath and Body Parts. He does all of the editing, production, sound, and music design, and also gives creative input. Um, so I'm really I know, excited. I don't know about a genius, super genius, Skip <laughs> Matthew. I did come He's up like, with oh, I did come stop. up with the podcast name though. Yes, that you was my did. idea. You did, so, and that was kind of the catalyst. So that kind of yes. was when everybody said, "Yeah, I guess we're going to do this now." One hundred percent. One hundred. Now we have a name <laughs> we can actually start doing things with. Amazing! So I'm very excited that he gets to join us today. I'm very excited. I hope I fill Melanie's shoes adequately well. Yes. It's going to be awesome. And the timing is fortuitous because he actually has something special cooking up just for patrons, which I will be talking about at the end of today's episode. And now let's dive into today's case. On March 26, 2018, Sheriff Coroner Thomas Allman was called to the scene of a collision along the Pacific Coast Highway in Mendocino County, California. An SUV had been spotted at the bottom of a 100-foot cliff. The car had gone off the side of the cliff in an area where there was no guardrail. And responding officers could see the car from the top of the cliff upside down, crumpled in the water. Inside the car, police officers found two unidentified adult females and three children. And right away, the natural inclination was to believe that this was just a horrible accident. And their first course of action was to try to identify who was in the car. They found a Washington driver's license with the name Sarah Hart and began to see what they could find out about the family. And just a quick Google search led them to plenty of information because the Hart family was very, very present on the internet. Social media was full of pictures of Sarah Hart with her wife, Jen, and their six black adopted children, Devante, Jeremiah, Sierra, Hannah, Abigail, and Marcus. The officers found pictures and videos of the family smiling, laughing, singing, dancing, spending time at festivals. They would carry signs promoting free hugs, love, peace, and happiness. And they also attended rallies and protests for Black Lives Matter and other progressive movements. And there was one photo in particular that was everywhere. And I'm sure that most of our listeners have seen this picture. I had seen this picture. Uh, yes, and I, yes, I didn't know that that everywhere. was what this this story was going to be. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't even realize that that picture was associated with a story like this. Right, exactly. But it was, a, it was such a it was such a viral 
photo that we it all was. It was much a saw it. hugely viral picture. It was a picture of Devonte hugging a white police officer at a Portland rally following the grand jury decision not to prosecute Darren Wilson, who's the officer who shot Michael Brown. And I, I mean, I just remember this picture was all over the news and social media, and it's like the hug heard around the world. So. Yeah, very, very familiar. Yeah, tears are streaming down his face. Yes, he's it's a crying. it's a very emotionally charged picture. Very much, and it being it coming out right at that time. Yes. And so, when the officers found all of this on the internet, they were sure that they had found the family that had ended up at the bottom of the cliff. But what had happened to this seemingly happy, loving family? Where had they been going, and how did they wind up dead at the bottom of the cliff? <laughs> Before we answer those questions, we need to journey back in time and give you some backstory on the Hart family. Jen and Sarah Hart met in college at Northern State University in South Dakota, where they were both education majors. And Jen was very outgoing. Uh, She was the kind of person who made friends easily driven, smart, and very involved in activism. She became an important member in any group that she found herself in. At the same time, Sarah was quieter and more shy, really let Jen take the lead on things. They struck up a relationship together, but this was in the early 2000s, and for several years they were in a closeted relationship. But eventually, they came out publicly and did face discrimination in their area, and the couple decided to move to Minnesota in 2004. I think it is easy to forget how different it was just not that long ago. It has been a very rapid change. It really has. Sarah did file for a name change to match her domestic partnership because this was before the legalization of same-sex marriage, which is crazy to say um, that it, not even 15 years ago, they wouldn't be able to marry legally until 2009 when they went to Connecticut to get married. Because it still wasn't legal everywhere. It wasn't legal in every state, so you had to cross yeah. state lines to get married if you were Ugh. gay. The two wanted to have a family, so they applied to become foster parents. And they soon began fostering a 15-year-old girl. Now, according to an interview that that girl later gave with the Seattle Times, she was happy with the hearts. They did normal family things together, like camping and going on picnics and outings. And she had actually had to call her caseworker to enter into this foster situation. It was not her first time in the system. And so it was really sad because she just kind of saw her mom and realized that the situation wasn't good. And so she was the one to make the call to her caseworker Mm. that led to this appointment. And so it was really nice that she had kind of this happy family. Uh, But like many teenage girls, and especially those that have come from difficult backgrounds and are foster girls kind of adjusting to a new situation, she would butt heads with Jen and Sarah from time to time, in particular with Jen. And in this article, she recalled one particular instance where the three of them went to a Packers game at Lambeau Field. And Jen was a huge Packers fan. So are you. Yes, yes. And so she was obsessed with Amon Green and they really wanted to get his autograph. And 
they managed to approach him after the game and they had each brought a football with them that they wanted to get signed. And he was walking through the crowd, you know, signing autographs and he walked up to them and picked the foster daughter's ball to sign from the three of them, which makes sense because it's two adults and a child. Right. But Jen was furious with her after that and didn't even talk to her for several days. This is just the first obvious tantrum. Yes. Uh, That's exactly what that strikes me as. It's just a full on just not getting the attention that she wanted to get and the special thing she wanted, which is what you would expect from a child or a foster child who butts heads with you to throw a tantrum about right but it's the mom throwing the tantrum right, exactly not the grown woman who is responsible for another human being's life now right now this girl who is not identified by name in this article and we will not identify her by name was not allowed to socialize much or leave the house so she wasn't at work or school she would ask to go hang out with friends and she was told no, but she was still very happy. She felt like it was a very good home. And when they asked her if she would like to stay with them permanently until she turned 18, she felt very good about the situation. It was a loving home. She was excited to be part of it. And she thought, this is it. I found my place. And after about six months, Jen and Sarah told her that they were hoping to adopt some other children. And I think that they had applied for this foster situation to show that they were qualified parents and to get approved for the adoption. And she was actually very excited about this and very happy about the prospect of being a big sister. And they would talk to her about how she needed to be a good influence on the kids. And she was very, very happy with the situation. And after a while, Jen and Sarah got a call about a family of children in Texas that were in need of a home. And there were three siblings in the family, Marcus, who was five, Hannah, who was two, and Abigail, who was six months old. For those three children, their mom had had trouble taking care of them and had kind of acquired some cases of neglect against her. And she decided to voluntarily relinquish her rights in hopes of giving them a better life. And so they got matched with the hearts and about a week before they were set to come live with them, Jen and Sarah dropped the foster daughter off for an appointment with her therapist. And during that appointment, the therapist told the girl that they were not coming back for her. She didn't get a warning, a goodbye, an explanation of any kind, just that they had decided that she wasn't a good fit. And hey, by the way. Me, your therapist, who's here to help you work through trauma. By the way, trauma's happening right now to you because your parents aren't coming back. Right. Oh, my gosh. It's devastating. I just can't. This particular detail, I don't think even made it into any of the documentaries I watched about the case, but it is just crushing. I, I, had, I didn't know this detail. Yeah. It's really, really sad. And I think it does speak to their character that they did it this way because that they discarded the child when they were done and they had more children. Yes. Like a, like a child throwing away a toy when they're done with it. Yeah. It's almost like they've got this cute little family of young children coming in and they don't need you anymore. And they're not even going to bother to tell you they're just going to drop you off and abandon you. And like you said that they were maybe using the foster situation as a trial period to prove they could adopt. Once they got the adoption, there was no reason in their minds to continue with the fostering. 
because it was a means to an end. Exactly. Which is awful. Exactly. Very, very sad. So after that, she was appointed with another family since Jen and Sarah had their three new children. Their adoption was finalized in 2006. And a year after their initial appointment, social workers noted that the children were doing great with the hearts. Uh, The hearts wanted to adopt more children and were told about another family of three siblings, Devante, Sierra, and Jeremiah. These three did have an aunt who was actively fighting for custody. She had been approved to have them stay with her, but as part of the agreement, they weren't allowed to see their biological mom. One day, while the aunt was at work, her daughter let the biological mom in to visit without her knowledge, and the caseworker showed up and immediately took the children away, which is very unfortunate because it seems like that would have probably been an okay place for them to be with their aunt. They had a loving family member, and I think this varies by state, but in Texas where this happened, it's always the goal that foster children will be appointed with someone in the family if there's somebody that's able and willing to care for them. So the fact that they did have somebody who actively wanted them and... Right, they're a (sighs) relative, they're familiar with them, it's a gentler transition. Yeah, it's just, it's really unfortunate, especially given what ends up happening in this case. Yeah. Jen and Sarah applied to adopt them and were set to have that adoption finalized in 2008. But during that process, one of Hannah's teachers noticed bruises. When asked, Hannah said that her mom had hit her with a belt, which is not super uncommon, but it is uncommon to be leaving bruises when spanking. And these bruises were on her arms, which I do feel like is a little unusual, too. That's not really a spanking to me. No, not at all. A CPS report was filed, but it was ultimately swept under the rug. That same year, they adopted the other three children. In 2010, Abigail showed her teacher bruises on her back and stomach. And again, very unusual. Bruises on your stomach, that is a huge, huge red flag. That is not a discipline area. That that is not a place to, uh, even if you agree with spanking. Right. To begin with. Because that's a whole other issue, but... If you think corporal punishment is appropriate, you will likely also agree that the back, arms, and stomach is not... That is that is an abusive place to strike a child. If you don't want to hear uh, a little bit more detail on this abuse, uh, this is your content warning to skip ahead for 30 seconds or so. Abigail told her teachers that Jen found a penny and accused her of stealing it. She had punched her in the stomach and held her head under cold water as punishment. That is not punishment. No. And that could not be described as punishment. That is that is torture. Yeah, it's really bothersome. Holding someone under cold water, you could make the argument it, it could approach a war crime. Yes. And the fact that this was over a penny that was found in this little girl's pocket is mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Kids pick up everything and, like, you're going to accuse a child of stealing a penny and then you're going to beat them in response and torture them? And torture them under cold water. This, I think, starts uh, the first signs of sort of the micromanagement and absolute controlling dictatorship. Yeah. 
uh, that that we will see in Jen. And this is very, very much a progression, right? Like hitting with a belt, not okay. Right. But it starts to get worse. Another CPS report was filed, and this time the police were called in. Almost immediately, Sarah took responsibility. And she said that she had leaned Abigail over the bathtub to spank her and hit her too hard. And that's where the bruises came from. And I don't buy that. No, not at all. And remember that Abigail very explicitly said that this was Jen and Sarah is instantly copping to it. So very interesting. Yes. Sarah pled guilty to domestic assault and was sentenced to one year probation. One year of so, probation. I hope we all feel real good about that because she... For pleading guilty <laughs> to domestic assault of a child. You know, it's so crazy to me because... An adopted child. <laughs> this entire case, we see so many missteps with the system and so many places where somebody should have stepped in and something different should have happened. I can't believe she only served probation only. But in other countries, and again, what happened here is different than like spanking or whatever, but there are countries where any kind of corporal punishment is illegal, but they don't necessarily like throw you into jail or give you a fine if you get caught doing something. Right. It might be more of a citation, I guess. Well, they actually put you in like a course to teach you better management. Right. Like defensive driving. And I feel like (laughs) that would have been... Kind of useful here. This is kind of laughable, but more useful it is, still. It is, but I think because they've got these six kids, right? And not at all justifying what they're doing. But maybe things might have turned out differently if somebody had stepped in and said, here's ways that you can manage things without getting out of control. Now, maybe not, because at this point, they've escalated to full abuse by this point, so it might be too late. But but you could have at least gotten more of a paper trail if then those people working with them see that it's not helping and it's getting worse. Exactly, because then it's kind of this oversight that there's not... If you're just saying, oh, you're on probation and here you go, you're back out to do whatever you want, including continuing to abuse your children. It's very different than we're going to have somebody coming in and working with you and watching for the kids and making sure that they're okay. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. The next year, Hannah told a faculty member at her school that she had not eaten anything all day. And when the school called home... Sarah told them that this was just her food insecurity, and she, in fact, used the term, quote, playing the food card, and told the school just to give her water. Oh, you're hungry? Oh, way to play the food card. Oh, now I have to feed you because it's something you apparently have to do for children? So where this is kind of coming from is a lot of times if kids have experienced food insecurity where they've been in a situation where they haven't had food, they will develop 
these food issues where they feel the need to hoard it, even when they have plenty of food available to them. And I think that's what Sarah is going for here. But I think the wording that she chose, A, shows how insensitive she is. That doesn't describe that at all. No, it doesn't describe that at all. And B, I think this is the beginning of something that we do see play out with Jen and Sarah, where they're trying to blame everything that they're doing on the kid's past home life. And it is a theme that comes up a lot. Right, right. Because there that is in print and it is in there is a paper trail of them coming from, you know, worse situations. Exactly. So these allegations continued and shortly after Jen and Sarah pulled the kids out of school and started homeschooling them with Jen being the stay-at-home mom and Sarah working. And this is also something that we see a lot in cases of abuse of children is that school is a touch point for the kids being able to get help. And when reports come out, a lot of times the family will just withdraw them and homeschool them. Not saying there's anything wrong with homeschooling, not saying that everyone that homeschools their kids is abusing them. Obviously, that's not the case at all. I I was homeschooled myself, Uh, but I can also see how... Well, if you are abusing your child and you're getting caught because the school faculty is finding out, the next obvious choice to remain hidden is to remove them from the school. Exactly. And then problem solved, there's no faculty to see the bruises or hear the stories. Exactly. And while all of this was going on, Jen and Sarah were sharing posts on social media, stories, videos, pictures, and they're putting forth the image of this perfect, wonderful family where they're all lovey-dovey and the kids are so happy and they're having so much fun. But behind the scenes, friends and acquaintances continue to notice concerning behaviors. In 2013, a friend of Jen's contacted CPS and she told them about a night that the family had ordered pizza and that Jen had cut only one small slice for each child. So not even the regular slice that the pizza comes in, but she double cut them. So the pieces were like really tiny and she gave each kid one piece of pizza. And then in the middle of the night, Sierra had gotten up to eat some yep. more of the what pizza. I, what I remember, uh, I don't remember if it was in the the main documentary, but the the interview that I saw said that the the person whose house they were at just sort of casually asked her husband the next day, did you eat the pizza that was in the fridge? And Jen overheard that and had an outburst and said, I can't believe them. And she was angry and grabbed Sierra out of a sl- out of deep sleep and dragged her into the bathroom, then went on to punish all of them. By forcing them to lay on their beds Perfectly still. With their arms at their sides. sides, Wearing sleep masks for five hours. Five hours of essentially sense deprivation. Yes. Sense and contact deprivation. So this is this is an advanced form of psychological torture. Yes. Again, this is beyond cold water. Torture. To full sense deprivation and and withholding of any human contact. And it is really odd to me that Jen does this in front of her friend and her friend obviously expresses concern and she said that Jen just basically didn't even it didn't even register to her that she was doing anything wrong like she was just like oh this is totally normal this is completely fine which of course indicates that things like this were going on a lot more often right 
And other friends were also worried for the kids and reached out to CPS right around the same time. And they would say things like, the children are basically, quote, trained robots that are clearly scared of Jen and that she poses them for these pictures and the children come to life in front of the camera. And as soon as the picture is done, they just fall flat and look unhappy and miserable, which... And that is <sighs> terrifying and heartbreaking at the same time. Crushing. And I, and I, I mean, I can see it because when watching the footage of these kids, I used to do a lot of uh, children's theater as a kid mm-hmm. at church. And what I see in these kids is bad stage acting like they're happy. They're not quite sure what they're about to do, but they kind of know the mood they're supposed to be setting. And they're you know, just sort of roaming around for the next thing that they're going to be excited or happy about in a in a scene where they know they're being watched by an audience. Yes. And that and it's very scary to look at because it knowing what we know about it that they are themselves terrified and traumatized the whole time really that they're acting so happy. And that goes into the whole thing with Devante, um, which we will get more into. Yes. And I think a lot of times you'll see these videos of the kids at festivals. And in those videos, they do seem genuinely happy. And of course they do because they're actually out of the house and allowed to have fun for just that one day. They're meeting they're meeting people that are friendly and happy to see them and genuinely affectionate with them. Yes. As opposed to the terrifying stage mom Jen that is one thing in front of the camera and then immediately ordering them around yes. the next. And there, Jen's in the public eye. She's got all these people around. I mean, she's being a great super mom. In those moments, they know that they're not going to be hurt. They know that they're going to be taken care of. They know that they're going to be happy. Right. It's, and they also know that if they don't act happy, they're not getting fed later. Exactly. So these reports prompted a new investigation by CPS that lasted six months. And the resulting report stated that they believed that there could potentially be concerns with the family, but that there was insufficient evidence to move forward. I that so so, so hands in the air, give up. Yep. Good luck, kids. I oh, guess. there's probably something going on here, but we can't do anything about it. There's there's probably something going on, but we gotta wait until something worse happens. Turns out to be a big mistake. Jen and Sarah's response to all of these allegations was that they were being targeted for being lesbians and people are just calling and reporting them because they're discriminating against them. So they're playing the food card. Playing the food card. And again, anytime (laughs) they were questioned, they were quick to point out that the children came from unstable homes. They had food insecurities past drug problems. They would use the term drug babies a lot to describe them. Which, honestly, they should have led with these explanations instead of saying it's because they're lesbians. Right. Well, I think they very much wanted to be the victims, too. So they were like, let's be the victim and also point out how very, the kids very have these true. issues. That is very fair, especially... Especially Jen. Absolutely. And the more that allegations came out against them, the more that Jen and Sarah started isolating themselves and the kids, which, again, is something that we do see in these similar types of cases. Anytime that you can start to close off anybody that might call, anybody that might notice the red flags, anybody that might intervene, 
you just draw in and get more and more right. isolated where the abuse gets worse and worse because you have no oversight. Yeah, and, and restrict access to the kids to only people at rallies and festivals that they've never met before and are never going to see again. So they can't they can't see any signs or symptoms, repeated symptoms. Exactly. And Jen and Sarah, during all of this, continued to put out tons of social media content about the family and especially about Devante. Now, Devante shows up in Jen's Facebook all the time, far more than the other children. And, you know, the skeptic in me says that that's because he is a very stereotypically cute, charismatic child. I think he has this beautiful face and this beautiful smile and he's very outgoing and she just viewed... Very cute kid. Very cute kid. And that was the face of of her family. Right. And apparently very enthusiastically uh, genuine wanting to give out these free hugs. Yes. He always had these free hug signs and he would hug anybody at the festivals. And Turns out he, he really enjoys these hugs because he doesn't get any hugs from his mom. Exactly. And so these are the kinds of stories that they would put on Facebook. I'm just going to read a couple of these to you. This one is on Sarah's Facebook from November 8th, 2016. These are brutal. (sighs) I was recording the sunset tonight and caught this conversation. My heart. Devante, I wish I could vote. Jen, you vote every day. Jeremiah, huh? Jen, you vote with your actions, your bravery to stand up for what you believe in, and you vote with how you choose to spend or not spend your money. You vote by being strong and confident to be yourself in a world that can crush the strongest of character by manipulation and fear. Devante takes a deep breath. Did you follow your heart with your vote? Jen, well, yes, but I took the knowledge I had and combined it with what my heart feels. The best decisions are always made. Boys interrupt. J and D together, when the brain is connected to the heart and they are working together. D, we know. J, you remind us a lot. Oh, my God. And that's so so orchestrated. It's just so orchestrated. Sarah is posting these things that make out Jen to be this super guru mommy, like, the greatest mother that you could ever possibly want and also ever want to be at your political rally. Yes. And again, it just, but at the same time, just reads like a chain letter. Yes, exactly. It strikes me as very, very inauthentic. It's a weird thing to post on your personal account that this is something that actually happened to you when it reads like it was copied off of a chain. letter. (laughs) Exactly. And then, this one from November 8th, 2014 on Jen's Facebook is is really an important one because of what comes after. So I'm going to read this one. We were standing in the grocery checkout line. An elderly man was standing at the end of the bagging area conversing with the woman checking us out. He spots our son, looks him up and down. Man, I can tell you are going to be a baseball player when you grow up. Son pauses, tilts his head, and gives a closed mouth grin. Actually, no, baseball isn't really my thing. Man, well, I can tell you are going to be a baseball player. Son, asks his mom, I can tell there's a slight frustration inside of him. No, I don't even play baseball. Check out lady. Oh, I bet you're going to be a basketball or soccer player then. Son, no, I don't play any sports. It's just not my thing. There's nothing wrong with sports or anything. I just have other interests. Check out lady in a befuddled, nearly astonished voice. What? I have never met a kid that looks like you that doesn't play sports. Man, 
chuckling, right? Never. They all do. It should probably be mentioned that my face was as red as my hair at this point. It was so obviously clear what was happening. While I wanted so badly to step in and protect my son from the ongoing racial stereotyping, I didn't. I let him step into his own power and he handled it brilliantly. Son, well, of course you've never met a kid like me. I'm one of a kind. There's not another person like me. Man, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Son, I'm here to help people. I'm here to inspire now. Man, oh, so you're going to be a doctor? As he laughed while he said it. Not kidding. Son, no, I'm not. Man, well, being a doctor is the best way to help people. What are you going to do to help and inspire people? Son, putting the last of the bags in the cart. I'm going to be myself. No matter how much people try to make me something I'm not. Have a great night. Flash's ginormous smile. I think this kid will be all right, no matter what is tossed at him. I'll take things that absolutely never happened for 800, Alex. Yes, there is a 0% chance that this incident happened this way. This belongs on, and then everyone clapped. Right. And also it makes me think that uh, Jen actually wrote Sarah's post. Because it reads the exact same way. Yeah. And with how controlling Jen is, like she's she's coaching Sarah on how to make her sound yes. better. I would not be surprised about that or that Sarah is so passive that she's kind of absorbed Jen's personality and mimics her Facebook posts one way or the other. This is so fake. Right. She actually wants to make Jen look good so that Jen is happy and her world gets to keep spinning. Yes. And not, you know, of course, racial stereotyping happens. Of course, right. people talk to kids this way. People do these things. But the particular terminology and the way this fell out, you can tell this, none of this happened. This is when, not When true. Jen is the unintentional hero of the story because she allowed him. Exactly. I stepped back speak, and allowed him to step into his own power. To step into his own power. I... I withheld my judgment of them and let him be brilliant because I knew I was wise enough to do that. Yes. That's cringy. It's real bad. So that last Facebook post went viral and caught the attention of Huffington Post. And they ended up interviewing Jen. Despite being clearly manipulated and fake. Oh, who who on the Huffington Post staff <laughs> right. thought, I, I mean, I guess it the same with Jen. It wasn't because it was a good post, but because it was a viral post. Exactly. It was the amount of eyes on the post that made the Huffington Post take notice, which is, turns out, not a real great way to conduct yourself. The piece entitled Meet Devante, the little boy with a big heart, told all about how when Jen and Sarah had adopted Devante, he only knew the words shit and fuck and that he'd been shot at before he was four years old. Also sound a likely story there. Mm -hmm. we, we adopted this feral baby <laughs> who only knew how to curse and knew no other words and was basically a gangbanger. And now he's putting racists in their place at the grocery store in his own power. Now he's the Dalai Lama. Jen and Sarah also said that with their unconditional love, nurturing natures, patience, and acceptance, Devante defied all odds and has grown into a young, charismatic man with a heart of gold. Gag. It's real bad. That is it. That is 
putting the cart before the horse in so many ways, just stepping out in front of the star of the show, who is supposed to be Devante, the article. Yes. It's titled Again, it's Meet all Devante. About them. It's all about what they've done. And they just described how amazing they are to have produced him. It was apparently a touching story, but it was not true. Shonda Jones, the lawyer in Devante's custody case, said that none of that was accurate. Devante did come from a home where his mother struggled with a drug problem, but he was never shot at, he wasn't developmentally behind, and he never witnessed or encountered violence of any kind. He was not a baby, uh, a four-year-old who could only say fucking shit. Right. That's all fake. Basically, that was all fake. But Jen thrived off of the attention from the piece. And, of course, people praised her online and praised Sarah for taking in these troubled kids and giving them a happier and more stable life. And, you know, they thrive off of online praise. Yes, they're just getting all this status, all this dopamine. At least Jen does. They're loving it. Yeah, at least Jen. That year, the Black Lives Matter movement was gaining traction and national attention. And at rallies, Jen had always been vocal, always positioning herself as the speaker, as an advocate, the person carrying the torch and sharing the message, stepping out in front of the point, apparently, also. In retrospect, at the time, it may not have seemed that way, but you can see the pattern now. And I do think that's fair. We can look with hindsight and say this was her pattern but at the time people thought she was being genuine at the time she might have just been a a good organizer at a rally but it wasn't long before the darren wilson grand jury decision came out and the rallies began and that's where the famous photo of Devante hugging a portland police officer was taken newscasters loved the photo the hug heard round the world they called it a little boy healing the world They ate it up. I remember Brian Williams Mm -hmm. just gushing over the photo, saying, this just might be what the world needs to see right now. Yep. And uh, on the other side, that photo brought a lot of attention to the family. And not all of it was positive. While many news stories uh, did celebrate it, other pieces came out written by people of color that questioned it. Critics viewed Jen as the, quote, white savior who drew attention to her own actions and distracted from the real focus of the movement, like we've been talking about. Some columnists even questioned whether that photo wasn't orchestrated by someone other than Devante, which is an interesting point because there were other people present, other photographers, other members of the media, Mm -hmm. who said in interviews that, and I saw a picture that was of Devante away from the crowd with Jen. Mm -hmm. And she's looking down at him and he's looking up at her without a smile, listening very intently to what she's telling him as though he's being coached what to do. He's not there for free hugs. He's not having a good time. She's full stage mom mode. And then you see her, she has her camera around her neck. And then there's an, another view of the photo right before it's taken which has Devante just right in front of the police officer. And Jen is already on one knee taking photos of him in front of the cop. And there's just people around 
noticing that something is going on. This sort of this, I saw it referred to as a captive audience. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like it could be an orchestrated moment. And that a lot of people I heard talk about it uh, said his tears when he's hugging the cop are not, these are not happy tears. These are trauma tears. And the, the, the discourse between Devante and the police officer reflects that because the police officer asked him if he knew why he was there. And he said, yes, he did know. And then he asked the the police officer asked for one of his free hugs and he gave it to him, which I feel like maybe he hit, if he really did know it was because of disproportionate brutality toward people of color that they were, that was the reason they were there. He knows that he is a person of color. And then he knows he's in front of his mom who wants him to hug this cop. And so he's terrified of mom. He's terrified of the cop because he knows the reason they're there is because cops murder people of color. And he's, he's literally, he's between a cop and a hard place and just has to hug him and cry. Yes. And obviously we don't know for sure what was going on in Devante's mind in that photo. We don't, know for sure that it was orchestrated by Jen. This is all speculation based on patterns yes, of Jen. based on her patterns and based on Devante's face in the photo. And him clearly being in an abusive and traumatizing environment all the time. It would not at all surprise me if this were the case. And that, Soakers, is where we're going to end today's episode. In part two, we'll dive into more of Jen's spiral into isolation and control that eventually led her to move the family to a secluded area in Washington. We'll also hear how the kids tried to get help and ultimately how tragedy struck. If you're a patron, you can go ahead and listen to part two right away. Otherwise, tune in with us next week to hear the rest of the tale. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. If you'd like to support the podcast and get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more.